Are you all woken up from that worship set this morning? That was great, right? Well, hello, my name's Paul, uh, one of the pastors, one of the elders here. If I've not had a chance to meet you, please come up after the service and say hi. I love to meet new folks, and it's just a great opportunity to be worshiping together. I want to start by telling you a story. Um, who remembers those big yellow school buses, right? We don't see them around as much anymore, but super uncomfortable, bouncy. Um, <clears throat> I have a vivid memory. I think I was a sophomore in high school, riding one of those school buses from where I lived in Houston to Austin, Texas. It was early on a Saturday morning, um, and I did not want to go where that school bus was headed. The only way to describe what I was feeling is dread, just that sinking feeling in your stomach. See, I was on the wrestling team in high school, and uh, I was not a very good wrestler. <laughs> uh, I was about as tall as I am now, and I had about 40 less pounds on me. So um, the whole like muscle thing wasn't a big part of my life. Uh, I'd cut weight to make the particular spot. I hadn't eaten much in order that I could make weigh-in. Um, so I was pretty sure that I'd woken up early on a Saturday morning to sit on an uncomfortable school bus for several hours to go and lose within probably the first 10 seconds or so of my first match and then be done for the day. So I was not excited about the day before me. And I wonder how many of us have felt that similar kind of experience in some situation. We're headed towards something that we really don't want to get to. And for whatever reason it might be, we are on some kind of journey, some kind of path that ends in an unpleasant destination. Why are we there? Why are we doing this to ourselves? How can we survive? What is it that can sustain us through whatever difficulties lie ahead? Well, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent, and Lent is a great season to be asking those kinds of tough questions. How is it that we can face the challenges that God puts before us? So this morning, we're kicking off a series. It's another one of these collaborative series that we've prepared with several other churches in the area. So we've been studying with uh, First Christian Church, uh, AME Zion Next Door, Vineyard Church, Union Presbyterian Church, and Lord's Grace Church in Mountain View. And pastors, several of us have gotten together to study a series of passages from the book of Mark that outline two different, opposite, but complementary themes about who Jesus is. Passages that demonstrate him as both a suffering servant, but also a conquering king. Jesus as both a suffering servant and a conquering king. This morning, we're going to start off that series by looking at three predictions that Jesus makes regarding his suffering, death, and resurrection. And what we're going to see is that Jesus begins up in the northern part of Israel and starts walking down towards Jerusalem. And as he does, he makes these three predictions. And the journey from... Galilee to Jerusalem for Jesus becomes a journey to death. He knows that he is going to die. 
And as we watch him travel and as we travel ourselves along with him, we will realize that the sufferings that Jesus is about to face are awful, that they are going to be incredibly difficult. And yet we also see that there is something on the other side. There is something else that awaits him. We like to say that uh, at PBC, we are following Jesus together in Silicon Valley. It's one of our taglines. And what we're going to see this morning is that as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, they lead to the cross. As we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, they lead to the cross. And so initially, this is going to be a hard kind of message, a challenging message, one that asks us to do some introspection and consider how it is that we're willing to walk that difficult road with Jesus. But we're also going to find that this becomes the message that we need, the words of life. Because the truth is, we're going to suffer. Life is full of challenges. Unless... Jesus returns or the world ends before each one of us will face death. So the question is not, will we suffer, but how will we suffer? And with whom will we suffer? And what we're going to find is that Jesus invites us into this kind of relationship with him that allows us to face suffering with his presence, with confidence, and with the hope of what comes afterwards. So three times Jesus predicts his death. This is a map that shows where these three different uh, instances occur. Notice that he's up in the northern part. He starts north of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to wind his way down towards Jerusalem. And three times along that journey, he will predict his suffering, death, and resurrection. And what happens in the narrative of Mark is that the tension starts to build the closer he gets to Jerusalem. And so you get the feeling that the closer Jesus gets to arriving at Jerusalem, the more dread, the more foreboding is waiting him. We get it as the reader. We can see it. Jesus seems to get it. But somehow the the disciples just don't get it. (laughs) And that leads to one of the, the, the biggest questions of these passages is, How could they not have gotten it? Jesus clearly speaks about his death and resurrection, and yet they're all shocked when he dies, and nobody after he dies says, hey, it's going to be fine. He's coming back in three days, even though he's told them. And so we have to ask this question, how could they not have gotten it? And we just don't get the answer. That question's going to hang in the air over all of these passages. And I think it becomes an opportunity for us to think about something for ourselves, but we'll get there in a moment. All right. How many of you feel like Jesus sometimes speaks in riddles? Yeah, really tricky to understand, right? Well, in the book of Mark, we actually read that Jesus does this intentionally. The gospel author of Mark tells us that Jesus spoke in complicated sayings so that not everyone would understand. So if you feel that way, it's on purpose. Except 
When we get to his predictions of his death, we hear that everything changes. Mark says that Jesus speaks plainly. So listen to this first prediction. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and the first part of 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark points that out because it's different than the way Jesus often spoke. You can't get much clearer than that, right? Son of man must suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again. This is the pattern that each of these three predictions goes through, the same kinds of things, and yet there's a different kind of uh, emphasis in all of them as well. This first one really focuses on the idea that Jesus is going to be rejected. Jesus says the Son of Man will be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Now to us, that just sounds like three groups of people, but to them, they would realize that these three people are um, not groups of people that often like each other. It's like Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. They don't agree on a lot of things, but there's one thing they do agree on. They don't like Jesus. They have united around a common enemy, and that's Jesus. Think about that. Those are the three main powers of the Jewish religion. The whole religious institution comes together, puts their differences aside for the sole purpose of standing against Jesus. Listen to how one commentator puts it. This is a comprehensive rejection of Jesus by all the leading representatives of God's people Israel and thus raises as acutely as possible the paradox of the unrecognized Messiah. Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus's disciples. You're following this guy. You think he has some good stuff to say. He's kind of rubbed some people the wrong way, but, but, but you still like him. And then he tells you, we're going to go to the capital of our country where all the religious institution is headquartered and not a single person in power is going to approve of me. They're all going to reject me. It's a tough pill to swallow, right? So it makes sense then that when Peter hears this, we can always count on Peter to speak up. <laughs> When Peter hears this, he says, no, that can't be how this plays out. Listen to verse 32 and 33. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your eyes on the things of God, but on the things of men. It's an interesting little way it plays out. So, so Jesus is here with all the disciples and Peter. And Peter says, Jesus, come over here. You really shouldn't talk like that. This can't be how things are going to happen. And then Jesus rebukes Peter, but he wants everybody to hear. So he sees the rest of the disciples. He backs up and he rebukes Peter in the hearing of everybody. 
because they were all thinking it too. <laughs> Peter had the courage to say it, but they wanted to. And in the way the narrative of Mark plays out, Peter kind of serves as a stand-in for us because he says the things that we wish we had the courage to say, and he does the things that we wish we could do. And then we get to kind of watch him do it and see how it plays out and realize, oof, I'm glad I didn't say that. <laughs> so when Jesus rebukes really everybody, we're drawn into that as well. And we hear those words echoing as a question to us. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And we're forced to wonder for ourselves, is that true in our lives? See, Lent is a time to ask that question, am I willing to walk with Jesus into whatever it is he's calling me to do? Are we willing to walk that road? And Peter stands up to Jesus and says, no, we're not walking that way. And Jesus says, yeah, we are. Get behind me and let's go. So it invites us to ask the question for ourselves. How do we say no to God? How do we say no to the things that we have a sense God is calling us into? How do we say no to God? Over the course of my life, I have been thinking about how much of my energy and time is spent trying to avoid being rejected. You know, I see some situation, I think, this may not end well, so I do everything in my power I can do to change the outcome of that situation. Maybe I run from it, maybe I try and, you know, change the way people feel, or I present things differently, but there's this driving need not to be rejected. And yet Jesus says, come along. Everybody who's anybody is going to reject us. Now, the benefit of that, the gift of that, is that when it happens, we don't have to be surprised. When we are rejected, we don't have to say, man, I had no idea that life was going to be this hard. If we have chosen to follow Jesus, we are following somebody who walked into rejection. We should not expect anything but the same. And so Jesus invites us to come along. Right after this passage is where he says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. So Jesus walks through this path so that we can walk to it with him. Now, as the predictions continue, they actually intensify. They start to get deeper and deeper. Remember I said the, the tension builds as we get closer to Jerusalem. So in this first prediction, Jesus talks about rejection, but the next one gets harder. This is Mark 9, verses 30. To 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. So it seems like he kind of skirted around Galilee, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. 
and were afraid to ask him. Now, the word used here where Jesus says he will be delivered into the hands of men, that word delivered is most often translated betrayed. It has the sense that he will be turned over by someone he trusts. And so rejection is bad. If I approach you and you reject me, that's not very good. But betrayal is even worse. Because if you betray me, there's, there used to be something between us, but it's turned. I've been watching this TV show. I'm a little embarrassed to admit The Last of Us which is a uh, zombie show. Generally, I try to avoid zombies at all costs. Um, but this one's actually really well done. So there's this scene, though, where one of the characters says to the other, um, you can only be betrayed by the people you trust. And I thought, there it is. They're reading the Bible. So it's okay to watch the show, right? So it justified it for me. Um, <clears throat> You can only be betrayed by the people you trust. And that's why it hurts so much. That's why betrayal is worse than rejection. So after Jesus says this, notice what his disciples do. Nothing. It says they did not understand and they did not want to ask. They're just silent. Now, I think their understanding was not like they didn't comprehend the idea. They just couldn't imagine what was going on. They understood enough to know they didn't want to know anymore. Does that make sense? They understood enough to say, we don't want to ask anything deeper. I have another confession to make. Uh, I do not know where we keep the cat food in my house. We have two cats, and these cats need to eat pretty regularly, and I don't know where we store the cat food. Now, if I wanted to know where we stored the cat food, that would be a very easy thing for me to find out. I could ask any of the other six people that live in my house, hey, where's the cat food? But see, here's the problem. If I knew where we stored the cat food, I might have to feed the cats. <laughs> so by not knowing this very simple piece of information. I protect myself from an activity I'd rather not engage in. Fair? I think that's what the disciples are doing here. They could ask Jesus, hey, could you tell us more about this betrayal and death? We'd like to understand. But they don't because they really don't want to know. And it makes me wonder for us, what are those kinds of areas in our lives where we're kind of happy with some surface level understanding and we don't want to go deeper. What are we afraid to ask from God? What are we afraid to ask? Now I can resonate with this because uh, following Jesus is complicated. There's so many questions of how do we handle this and what do we do with that and we live in this culture that has so many issues whether it's uh, sexuality or gender or race or politics or disasters or my own life or how do we talk to this person or what do I do in this situation? And, and a lot of us, we just kind of try to figure out a way to make life generally work. And we really don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to push deeper because 
we're not sure what we'll find if we do. And so I think we can understand these disciples when they say, I don't understand and, and I don't know that I want to. I think I'm happy with the way things are. I'm just going to ignore the cats and let someone else feed them. I want to encourage us that I don't think God gives us answers to all of our questions. I think sometimes we can ask and we can go to that next level. And I'm not sure God gives us the kind of resolution and confidence and making everything clear that we want, but he's in it with us. And there's a benefit to to asking the question, to being willing to see what's next, to taking that next level and opening yourself up to something you may not understand and you may not even be able to put all the pieces together, but you're walking next to Jesus as you do so. He may not answer your questions, but he will be with you as you ask them. And so these disciples choose not to. They say, we don't want to know We're just going to keep on going. And they keep walking, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Let's look at that map again. And this is uh, Jesus getting closer. You can see now we're down to Mark 10. We're going to see this third prediction. And this is right on the cusp of arriving in Jerusalem. They're almost there. They've walked a long way. They're about to cross the Jordan River, go over into the capital city, and now we get the most intense of the predictions from the three. The detail of the suffering gets more, but we're going to see that the response of the disciples dissolves. Here's Mark 10, 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Notice how there's more detail here about the list of terrible things that is going to happen to Jesus. First, we saw Jesus would be rejected, then we saw he'd be betrayed, and now we see this kind of total humiliation that awaits the Son of Man. He'll be mocked. He'll be spit upon. He'll be flogged. And he'll be killed. Throughout the book of Mark, this is the way of Jesus. It leads towards humiliation. And imagine that. I mean, rejection is one thing. You you don't agree with me. Betrayal is another. You used to be close to me. You've turned against me. But now to be standing in public and have everything laid bare, to lose all validity and legitimacy, to have everyone 
laugh. Any notion of kingship, of leadership, of power is completely washed away. He's hung on a cross, completely exposed. And so as the predictions intensify, the response dissolves. Here we don't hear anything about what the disciples do. They don't challenge him. They don't stay silent. We just don't even know. And I think, honestly, they're in shock. They can't even comprehend how the person they're following could willingly walk into all those things. So for us, as the reader, seeing them not respond, it leaves this void where we can put ourselves in, where we put ourselves in the story and say, well, what would I have done? How would I have responded to that kind of prediction? We can ask ourselves, will we follow Jesus through death? Will we follow Jesus through death? Because he said there's something on the other side but that first part is really tough to hear. And what we're seeing highlighted is that the way of Jesus is a completely different mindset than the way of the world. We would love to think that life just goes up and to the right. And so many things in our lives train us to try to make that be our story. And yet here's Jesus who descends to death who faces the hard things, who walks into suffering and rejection and invites us to follow him. It's a completely different way of approaching life. A few weeks ago, there was a book published with the title Palo Alto, a book about our city here. The subtitle is uh, The History of California, Capitalism, and the World. So, you know, a modest attempt, like all things in our area are modest attempts at just a little history of the world, right? By a guy named Malcolm Harris, who's a journalist, and he starts with uh, the 1850s, goes through the gold rush, goes through the founding of Stanford, goes through, um, what else, the space race, the countercultural movement of the 60s into the emergence of the Silicon Valley, and he's got a bit of an agenda. His his story of Palo Alto is a pretty strident one. It's pretty tinged with some Marxist influences. Uh, one of the New York Times article points out, Karl Marx's long shadow darkens every page. So Harris is trying to tell a particular kind of story. Um, but what struck me about this book is the different versions of history that you might tell of Palo Alto. And so I, I looked at this book and I did a search. Guess how many times the word church appears in, in this story of Palo Alto? A little more than zero, five times. 700 and change pages, five occurrences of the word church. And so what Malcolm Harris doesn't include is the story of our brothers down the street at First Christian Church, whose church was planted in 1896 when they celebrated the first immersion baptisms to happen on the peninsula in San Francisco Creek here in Palo Alto. Harris doesn't tell that story. He doesn't tell the story of a group of people that bought this property at 3505 Middlefield and planted Peninsula Bible Church when this was way too far out from the city and no one would drive all the way out here. 
He doesn't tell the story of the 60s and 70s when there was a revival happening in this area, people coming to Christ in waves, lives being transformed. You don't read about that in his book. You don't read about any of the work of God in Palo Alto. It's as if there's two different streams happening. The the story of this place of achievements and progress and great things happening. And then there's God's story where he's been doing something different. It doesn't make the headlines. It doesn't make the biographies or the histories, but it is there. It is the way of Jesus. And it is a way of transformation and life and power and glory and brokenness redeemed. And the invitation for us is to say, which story are you going to live in? Are you going to walk with Jesus through suffering? Or will you try and go your own way and make it on your own? The people of God have always had this invitation to follow Christ through death. And so early followers of Jesus were martyred for their faith in droves. Later in the, Middle e- in the Middle Ages, the death rate among priests was far higher than others for the Black Plague because they were the ones that would go in and care for the dying. And they would end up themselves dying. During the Reformation, people had the audacity to translate the Bible into the modern contemporary language, knowing that many of them would be killed for doing so. Throughout history, God's people have somehow found a way to follow Christ through these incredibly painful things, trusting that there's something else on the other side. We've talked a lot about suffering and rejection and betrayal and humiliation as we've thought about these predictions, but I want to bring us back to that initial question we asked at the front and say, how could the people who are listening not have heard the part about resurrection? It was very, very clear. Three times Jesus talks about the suffering he's going to face, and then he will also rise from the dead. Mark 8 Mark 9, Mark 10, after three days, he will rise again. After three days, he will rise. After three days, he will rise. Jesus spoke this plainly. What is it that they couldn't hear? And again, I think that question just hangs. And as we ask that question, we're forced to put ourselves in their place and say, what am am I not hearing? See, I wonder if they just heard the part about death and their ears turned off. (laughs) They stopped listening after the hard stuff. And they didn't wait around to listen to the fact that Jesus said something else is happening after all of the hard stuff. Here's the question we're invited to ask. Can we trust Jesus for life on the other side of our hardships? Can we trust Jesus through death into life? And what we need to know, what you need to know is that God is on your side. That he's not asking you to walk into death. He's asking you to walk through it. 
That all of these things that he invites us to follow him in, they're they're not so that we would suffer, so that we would have hard things. They are so that we would experience the transformed, redeemed life that can only come on the other side of the hardships of this world. It is because God loves us, because we are his treasured possession, that he wants the best for us. We are going to face death all of us, but will we experience life on the other side? Will we trust Jesus in those moments where we're not sure that we can make it? Will we trust him that there's something better after? One of my favorite songs right now is by a woman named Ellie Holcomb. It's called Sweet Ever After. The chorus reads this way, got a lot of bad days still coming our way but it's sweet ever after. Wind and waves breaking over our walls, but the ship, they don't shatter. There'll be a lot of blessing by a life well lived as you lose what don't matter, but the sun's coming up on the stairway to heaven, and it's sweet ever after. That's pretty good theology, isn't it? There's a lot of bad days coming our way. That is true. It's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for all of us. There is a lot, a lot of pain in our future. But it's sweet ever after. After three days, he will rise again. Don't get stuck. Don't turn your ears off. Don't stop listening at the hard things so you don't hear the promise, so you don't receive the hope. There is resurrection, there is promise, there is hope if we can trust God for it. Remember that school bus I sat on early Saturday morning? I wish I could tell you a story that I surprised myself and I won the tournament and it was sweet ever after. And I wish I could say that. And to be honest, I don't remember exactly what happened on that particular morning, but most of those days ended just as I thought they would. Very quick loss, sitting around bored the rest of the day and going home a loser. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes we lose. Sometimes in life, the things we hope for don't happen. The person we love who's sick doesn't recover. We lose the job. We don't get what we want We ask God and we never hear anything in response. There's a lot of bad days still coming our way. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of betrayal. There may be humiliation in store for us. I don't know what God has called you into, but if it's anything like what he does with his people, it's some type of challenge, but it's something that he redeems. And it's sweet ever after. I want to share an experience I had earlier this week. Um, How many of you have seen the snow up in the hills these last few days? It's it's incredible, right? Well, I had the chance uh, early Thursday morning. I went for a morning run. And um, I really didn't want to go because I woke up, looked at the weather report. It was going to rain. I was like, why am I doing this to myself? It's kind of like that school bus thing. Um, But I went for a run up in the hills. and, And as I was running, it started to snow. And I found myself running through a blizzard until I got to the top of this vista. And I saw, uh, this is at Rancho San Antonio, one of the parks near here. 
Ground was covered in snow. Snow is falling down. I actually had brought up hot coffee with me, so I'm drinking my coffee. And I was the only one up there for about 10 minutes. And I, I did what I often do when I get to these vistas. I started to just pray for the Bay Area. But this time felt unique. I was up there alone, and, and I saw the snow falling down. And I just started praying, God, would you send your spirit like snow on the Bay Area? And I was thinking to myself that it's been a long time since we've had revival in the Bay Area. And it's been a long time since it snowed in the Bay Area. And I don't know, I'm not a prophet, but maybe one might lead to the other. Who knows? So I started just praying and I, and I was the only one there. So I started just yelling it, standing on that hill, watching the snow fall, looking out at the Bay Area saying, God, would you send your spirit on the Bay Area? Would you fall like snow? Would you heal our people? Would the name of Jesus be known? Would people come to faith in Christ? It's not something we can do. It's not something we can control. But God, would your spirit be at work here? That's my prayer. I hope it's your prayer. And whatever it is that God is calling us individually into, whatever path he's inviting us along, maybe it's part of that. Maybe it's part of what God is doing, that alternate history where God's story is being written, lives are being transformed, people are coming to know Christ, and healing is being found, life on the other side of death and suffering. We're going to continue in worship now. And uh, as we sing this song, I want to invite you to think about some challenge you might be facing, something that you have the sense God is calling you into, some journey with an unpleasant destination that you feel like is before you. And we're gonna sing the words of the song and I'm gonna come back up towards the end and I'm gonna invite you to receive prayer for that challenge in your life. And it's a little bit different for us, it'll be a little uncomfortable, but I'm gonna invite you to, to come forward, whoever wants to, and stand here while I pray over you. So I'm warning you because I know we'll freak out. It's just, you know it's coming. I'll come back up and I'll invite you to do that. And uh, we will just together ask God to walk with us. As we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, they lead to the cross. But as we follow through death, we find life eternal, death dissolves, and God's presence is with us forever. Amen. This was not in the schedule. Come this place and feel God moving in this song. 